Would you remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. I love the Hosanna song, but the second line is that he's the God who saves us, and then he's worthy of all of our praises. Those words don't rhyme. You're... You're welcome for ruining that song forever. <laughs> Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature, to suffer death upon the cross giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and come to share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So yesterday at my house was one of those days. You know the kind. <laughs> so Friday night is our kind of our Sabbath time. Friday night, Saturday morning. We have pizza on Friday nights and waffles on Saturday morning. And everything is as it should be. Except yesterday. <clears throat> the minute we woke up, yesterday was an absolute nightmare. Just every, everything. Every conversation with my kids. Every single one. All four of them. Every single conversation was an argument. All day long. Okay, their attitudes, there was just disobedience everywhere, had plans to do a project, and the weather disobeyed, and it rained. <clears throat> I went to Home Depot to get some wood, and it was sold out of the wood that I needed. I tried to make bread, and it just went all over the counter, and it was terrible. 
I cooked chicken for dinner on the grill, and I had barbecue sauce, and I had a brush full of barbecue sauce. Well, carrying it inside, and the brush just flips off the tray, splatters barbecue sauce all over the deck. The boys had a soccer game. They were up 3-2 in the fourth quarter. They lost 5-3. The Phillies lost 16 to 3. <laughs> Sorry, Deb. So terrible. Oh, so by the time, <clears throat> last night, by the time I sat down on my computer, usually after the kids go to bed, I kind of finish up, kind of convert, make sure my preaching notes are fine. I sat down. I was just in a terrible mood. It's like, this is terrible. This sermon, I might as well not even show up tomorrow. <laughs> this is just a waste. This, is an, this day is an absolute failure. But as I pondered that last night, this morning, I realized that in my frustration, I was missing the point of my own sermon today. Because today is the triumphal entry, right? It's Palm Sunday. We celebrate Jesus' triumph walking into Jerusalem to save the day, coming to save us. And for me, triumph always needs to look like winning. I want to win the bread making. I want to win the parenting. I want to win the soccer game. I want to win the projects. I need to win in order to triumph. And if this story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem tells us anything, <laughs> it should tell us that Jesus usually does it a different way than that, right? <laughs> That Jesus is doing something different, that his version of triumph looks different than our version, and that we often tend to miss it. So I just want to you to consider this in this, you know, this is a well-known story, but I want to kind of just point you to the complexity and the paradox of the triumphal entry today. That, this, that the heart of this story about Jesus is that triumph for, for Jesus in the kingdom of God often is different than what we expect or what we hope for. Jerusalem here, and I love the song Jerusalem. Glad Lem chose it for today. Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish world. It's, the, it's where the temple is. It's where the powerful people are. It's, it's the epicenter of all of the life of the nation of Israel. And during Passover, which is what was happening this week, you have tens of thousands, maybe over hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem. The city is swelling up, and they come from all over Israel to, the, to Jerusalem on this particular week, and they do this every year. They do it multiple times a year for, for festivals. They do it for Passover. They're coming down, yearly pilgrims, and they come down past the river, and they go up the mountains into Jerusalem. And as they go up, Psalm, I think it's Psalm like 116 to 130, called the Psalms of Ascents, and they're singing these psalms as they go up the hill. Psalm 118, they would have been singing this as a regular for many hundreds of years, walking up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so as they're all going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is in year three of his ministry, and his profile has been rising, right? He's been going around doing miracles. Uh, just a few weeks before this moment, he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
And the story tells us in John and the other stories that many people from Jerusalem went out to comfort Mary and Martha. These were apparently well-known people. Lots of Jews went out, comforted them, saw Lazarus rise from the dead. And Matthew records this story of a dinner party that Lazarus is at later, and Jesus is there with the risen Lazarus, sitting around with a bunch of people. Like, this is a well-known thing, right out there, a few miles out from Jerusalem, and he's raising people from the dead. And his profile is on the rise. Remember a couple, I think it was... Um, I forget whether it was Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, but one of them, during their uh, presidential campaign, they came to Charlotte, and they went to Plaza Midwood, and they went to Midwood Smokehouse. It's like they're coming into town, and you've heard about them on the news. This is people in Jerusalem are like, I know about Jesus. He's come here once or twice, and now he's coming into the city. He's making an, an entrance. And the anticipation and the tension is building. We saw last week, the disciples don't want to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus was almost stoned there last time he was there. It's the the phrase, cross the Rubicon. You know this phrase? Uh, Talking about um, going past the point of no return. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. This is the point of no return. He's going to do this. He can't go back after this. And in chapter 20 of Matthew, in verse 29, it says, As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Now, the geography of Israel, Jericho's at the bottom of the mountains by the river. And from there, it's this journey up. So even at the bottom of the mountains, you have everybody gathering around Jesus, a great crowd, a great crowd following him all the way up the mountains to Jerusalem. You ever been downtown Charlotte before Panthers game? And you're just, everybody's like walking toward the stadium, and there's just throngs of people, and there's people banging on upturned buckets and playing guitar and tuba and whatever else they do. It's just like, there's just, it's just raucous. Everybody's going in the same direction. It's just this big, giant, kind of, not quite a parade, but just a giant flow of, of energy and people. That's, this, that's the scene that we need to be picturing here. And in the first verse of our text today, Jesus gets to Bethphage, which is this kind of like Matthews to, to Charlotte. It's just right outside, right outside Jerusalem, and he's there and a great crowd gathers around him, and he gets to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you stand up on the Mount of Olives, you look right across this little valley, and you can see the city, you can see the temple, you can see everything. And Jesus is standing here, and he's ready to go in, and he tells his disciples, hey, I need a ride to get down. Can you call an Uber for me? So they go out, and they get the Uber donkey version. And they, Matthew 21, 6 says, they did as he directed them. So we're at the top of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is sitting on this donkey. I just, we just need to get into this scene. We read the scene, you're familiar with it, but just imagine the scene of just throngs of people. Later in the text, it says there's crowds behind him, there's crowds in front of him, there's crowds to the side. There's just people everywhere, and here's Jesus, and he's sitting on a donkey, and then we know well what happened in verse 8. This is the response. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. It's, laying this red carpet, as it were, for Jesus to walk down the hill. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Just throbbing with energy, walking down the hill, back up the hill into Jerusalem. They're laying their cloaks. They're waving their palm branches. You saw Jack waving his palm branches. Just kind of like looking around. Now these people are zeroed in on Jesus. Palms, coats, screaming, yelling. The verb here indicates that they were saying Hosanna to the son of David for a long time. This wasn't just like one chant that went up. It's just this ongoing 
parade. And then they get, they get into the city, and people are like, who, wait, who's this guy? This is the prophet, Jesus. They're saying, this is who he is. This is our prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth. This guy out from the wilderness is now here in the center of everything. This is nothing you haven't heard before. This is a familiar story. But what is going on here? Zooming out, we have to remember that for the Jews, Jewish identity, Jewish history for the last 400 years has been centered on one question. Who is the Messiah? When will we get our land back? When will we get our power back? When will we get our place back? When will we drive out these Romans and these Gentiles? You go back to the Old Testament, the glory days of Israel. Solomon and David in all of their splendor, ruling the world, having peace, military, economic, royal, religious might. I just imagine the, the kids, the Jewish kids, and they go up to Jerusalem. I imagine like, you know, on the Smithsonian, you go and you see all the, the museums about great American history. I imagine this in Israel. You go to like the, the Israelite History Museum, and you see the little bust of Solomon there, and a little video that tells you about how great things used to be back in the day. Is learning about Israelite civics. But there'd been a decline, right? They'd fallen off the cliff. The kingdom had split. They'd been exiled to multiple places. And even when they came back to the land, the, the prophets record them trying to rebuild the temple. And when they, they just can't make it as good as it used to be, they're just in mourning. Things are not great. Even after the return, there's persecution. They're nomadic. They're not returning to the time of glory. Eventually, Herod rebuilds the temple. Right? Herod's not really the guy you want rebuilding the temple. Things are bad. And they're waiting. God had promised they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And so every single year when you go down to Jerusalem, the question is, is this, is this the year? Is this the moment when we get our land back? Is this the moment when God rescues us? It's this constant state of anticipation and expectation. Even now, Jews, one of the things that animates Jews every year at Passover, you'll hear them say to one another, next year in Jerusalem. It's this constant state of waiting and anticipating and hoping that God would do what he said, restore the nation of Israel, restore the land, restore the throne of David. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, they'd waited. And many had presented themselves as messiahs through this time. One of the most famous is a guy named Judas Maccabees. You ever heard of Judas Maccabees? The story's told in the Apocrypha. And although he failed, as you might imagine, he failed to restore Israel to its glory. This is what, this is what 1 Maccabees in the Apocrypha says about Judas Maccabees. He gladly fought for Israel. He extended the glory of his people. Like a giant, he put on his breastplate, he bound on his armor of war and waged battles, protecting the camp by his sword. He was like a lion in his deeds, like a lion's cub roaring for prey. He searched out and pursued those who broke the law. He burned those who troubled his people. Law, lawbreakers shrank back for fear. All the evildoers were confounded, and deliverance prospered by his hand. He destroyed the ungodly out of the land. This is a Messiah, right? He's returning things the way that they should be. And then there's another uh, re relative of his named Simon, Simon Maccabees, and it says this, On the 23rd day of the second month, 
in the 171st year, the Jews entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. See, the grabbing of the palm branches is not accidental. The grabbing of the palm branches is, hey, this is our moment. This is our king. This is our, this is our guy. He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel now. In 2 Kings 9 verse 13, there's the story of Jehu being anointed king. And what do they do when Jehu's anointed king? They put their coats out on the ground in front of him and they say, Jehu is king. All of the symbolism and imagery of this story is kingship and power and might and Messiah. Palms, coats, Hosanna. This is a messianic celebration. This is the moment of God restoring Israel. The moment of salvation. And one commentator says, says this, Evidently, there were many who had thought of Jesus as the Messiah and were disappointed that he made no public declaration of who he was and of his determination to establish a kingdom. But they're disappointed. This guy, we, we think this might be the guy. They had heard his teaching. They had seen him do miracles. And as a result, they had hoped that he would proclaim himself king. And they were prepared to follow him if he did. Now, on Palm Sunday, they thought he was going to fulfill their hopes and they were ecstatic at the prospect. This is the moment we've been waiting for our entire lives. Triumph, victory, winning, it's finally happening. This is the excitement of the people as they walk down. Jesus is declaring himself the king, the Messiah. Going into J-Town, taking back the temple. This is it. And the people are like, we're in. We're palm people. We're grabbing our palms. We're going to follow you down. And we're going to take back the temple. And I just imagine like little, little penance. Jesus, Jesus for Messiah penance. Little buttons. Little yard signs. Little merch. Little merch table. Jesus for prez. Right? Like, we're going down. We're going to, this is it. This is the moment. This is my guy. Winning. We're going to do it. And they can just, they're just picturing what's going to happen over the next four days. They're going to go down in there. The Romans are, four days from now, Rome's going to be out. Jesus is going to be in. Everything's going to be great. Palm branches, come save us, Lord. That's what they're saying. This is it. And as, as I read this, I see us in it. We're like, Jesus is the king. We're palm people. We're like, go Jesus. We're here in church. We say the creed every week. Jesus is the... I believe in Jesus, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We say that. We believe that. Jesus, we're pro-Jesus. We're pro-Jesus. We're salvation. We want Jesus to bring us rest, right? We talked about this. Jesus is going to bring rest. Last week, we talked about Jesus bringing resurrection, right? Jesus is going to bring resurrection. This, this is the easy part of the story to get on board with, right? He's going to make things alive again, transform our lives, transform our families, transform our neighborhoods, transform our country. We want to get people to do the right thing and think the right thing and be the right thing. And like Jesus is here. Where do I sign? Where, when's the victory parade? Jesus for president. Like we're, we're Jesus people. And we want Jesus... We want Jesus to win. We want Jesus to celebrate power and victory, and we want people to see his might. 
And yet at the center of the story, the central imagery of this story is missed if we stop there. Because Jesus didn't choose the palms. Jesus didn't ask them to say Hosanna. Jesus didn't ask them to put their coats on the road. Jesus is making no actual declaration of messiahship. Jesus chose one thing in this story. It's the most overlooked part of the whole story. We might, we might say it, Lem said it earlier, but I want you to stop and ponder this. Jesus says in verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a, a donkey. A donkey. There's a reason why donkeys are called ass. Donkeys. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you say, the Lord needs them and he will send them on. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, marching down to the temple, and what does he choose for his motorcade? A donkey. A beast of burden. It's like, that's where you put your suitcases. That's not where you put the king. The same commentator says, the crowds were exultant that Jesus was symbolically declaring his messiahship, yet they took insufficient notice of the significance of his riding on a lowly donkey and the prophecy he was fulfilling. Right? They got the palm part right, but they missed the donkey. <laughs> the, the donkey, the center of the story. Why a donkey? This is incredibly intentional, and Matthew tells us why. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. That's the palm part. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew's kind of mashing up Isaiah 62, 11 and Zechariah 9, 9. And the word he chooses is the word translated here as humble. We t tend to think of humble as kind of a moral quality. Right? Great people can be humble if they don't. That's not really what the word means here. More often in the New Testament, it's translated as gentle or meek or mild. It's often paired with the word lowly, which means like literally low. Gentle, meek, mild. What one word describes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? Gentle, meek. The don Messiah plus donkey equals nonsense. Like, really. Seriously, it's a terrible choice. It's like choosing Albemarle as your like, place to set up shop as the governor of North Carolina. It's not, a, it's not a great choice. It's like Tom Brady staying in the Motel 6. Doesn't happen. Elon Musk driving a 1995 diesel Ford F-150. Makes no sense, right? It's like it's, it does not compute. A king riding on a donkey just simply doesn't compute. Right? Victory, power, and might do not go with the meekness and the lowliness and the humility and the gentleness of a donkey. There's so much dissonance in this, in this scene. This giant triumphal kingship parade on a donkey. And yet, at the pivotal and public moment of Jesus' kind of coming out, he chooses this. This is what he chooses, a donkey. He chooses to ride 
on something that communicates meekness and humility and gentleness and even shame. And the people like, seem completely oblivious to the fact that this is wrong. It's like, it, it's confirmation bias. They're like, yeah, just forget about the donkey. Like, we're going to go take over the temple. Like, on you, really? On a donkey? This is missing the point. And we need to ask, what does this tell us about the kind of kingdom that Jesus is setting up? The fact that in his moment of coming out, he chooses to ride on a donkey. And the people are getting his messianic identity right, but they're getting his means completely wrong. At least in their minds and their hearts, they are. Jesus is bringing salvation. That's why the palms are right. That's why it's good for us to celebrate this. Jesus does come to save. He does come as the Messiah, but it's not the whole story. The means of Jesus' salvation is gentleness and meekness and lowliness and humility, that his kingdom is accomplished through death and sacrifice and service, that the last will be first and the first will be last. Right, how do you normally take over land? Military might. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, that's the same word translated humble in our text. Blessed are, the, blessed are the donkeys, for they shall inherit the land. We're so used to inheriting and winning through domination and war and triumph. And Jesus is saying, it's not the palms that are winning the day, it's the donkey that's winning the day. My kingdom is not a kingdom of dominance, of more votes and more guns and more tanks and more power and more smarts. No, it's a, it's a kingdom where the king rides on a donkey. B.B. Warfield, reformed pastor and theologian, said, no impression was left by his life more deeply imprinted upon the consciousness of his followers than that of the noble humility of his bearing. And yet I think like the people that day, we're, we're just trained to ignore, to overlook, and to reject the donkey in the story. Like, let's just get, just pretend it's not a donkey and we'll wave our palms. Like, we love the palms, but we hate the donkey. We love the resurrection, but we hate the death part. I was talking to Justin Taylor a couple weeks ago, and he says, there's no resurrection without death. We love the power, we hate the service. We love the triumph, we hate the weakness. That's why I hated yesterday. And we just filter it out because it doesn't, it doesn't fit our, our paradigm. Like we vote for the person that seems presidential. You get all these surveys that tell why do people vote for certain people and not other people. Like half the time it's because they just seem more presidential. We, we choose leaders of churches and countries and businesses who just feel powerful, who feel like they're going to be successful, who are arrayed in power and extravagance and glory, which is all the opposite of the gentle, lowly donkey. I wrote down this quote, and then I couldn't find where I'd written it down from, so I don't know who it is. But he says, We are inundated with narratives in our lives that promise life found in superior force, in acquiring the best looks, the best bank accounts, the best weapons, and the best stuff. We are told that life is secured by winning, socially, economically, politically, and religiously, and everyone else losing. I just can't help but think about, about uh, the way Trump announced his first presidential campaign. You remember this? Riding down the escalator into Times Square, like, that's a triumphal entry. 
There's no, no donkeys anywhere to be found. But this isn't a Republican or Democrat problem. This isn't a right or left problem. This is an all of us problem. Winning, bigger, faster, better, more beautiful, more success, more subscribers, more views on our live stream. Right? This, if you watch uh, Apple's iPhone updates every year, just you hear the word more so often that it's just disturbing. Just more processing power, more this, more camera, more that, more, 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 more. Like, why? Just more. This is what we're trained for. And nobody goes to the Kentucky Derby and bets on the donkey, right? <laughs> that doesn't happen. And our, in our America, we're just, we, we love our triumphalism, our exceptionalism, our military might and power. The palm... It fits our confirmation bias about triumph, but not the donkey. And we bring this mentality to the kingdom of God. We want a winning Jesus. I've been pondering this all week, and then Thursday, I think I found this article. just came out this week by Esau Macaulay. He's, he wrote the little purple Lent book that I recommended. He wrote a book called Reading While Black. He says... Surely Jesus wants to establish his rule through us right now. One angry tweet and fiery comment at a time. And so we pick up our palm branches and we raise our shouts in support of the Jesus we've created in our minds, not the crucified Messiah whose rule is rooted and grounded in love. He, Jesus, has become a rallying cry for our agenda, not his. We want Jesus to win, and this is why we're obsessed with using power and top-down force to get what we think Jesus wants. I think it explains our obsession with megachurches and mega-platforms and mega-celebrities. And so the question for us in this is how, what would it look like for us to celebrate and follow a king who rides on a donkey? It's really easy to be palm people, but can we be donkey people? What, what aspects of your life might the donkey critique in this story? See, the only way to get Jesus is to get on the donkey with him. That's, that's where he is. He's on the donkey. <laughs> and if we're set on winning and triumph, if I measure every, every day of my life, whether it was good or bad based on whether I won, then I'm going to just miss what Jesus is doing. And I think that's part of what happened in my life yesterday. I'm not embracing lowliness. I'm, I'm chasing success. I'm chasing triumph on my own terms. Do our means as Christian people, in both our own lives and in what Jesus is doing, do they match the means of Jesus? Do, do we celebrate his victory without celebrating his means? Tim Keller has this great, great quote. He says, If the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man dying on the cross for his enemies and praying for them as he died for them, sacrificing for them, loving him. If that sinks into your heart of hearts, it's going to produce a certain way of life because God became weak, loving and dying for the people who opposed him, dying and forgiving them. What does it look like for us to ride on a donkey? I just want to show you something that I think is important. This word humble, gentle, the, the gentleness of the donkey, 
It's an important word in this story. It's an important word for Jesus. I think it's an exceptionally important word for our church right now. I'm going to tell you why. Because right here in this text, it was a humble, gentle donkey. There's a few other places where this word is used in the New Testament. One of them happens to be in Matthew 11:28. You ever heard this verse before? Come to me, all who are you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. It's the same word. And lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. This right there in the center verse of our rest series. Next week, we're going to start Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. This is verse 2 in Ephesians 4, or this is verse 4 verse 1. This is next week's text. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. It's the same word. Right? Jesus is gentle and humble to us. Jesus himself is humble and gentle, and Jesus is calling us to be that. All humility and gentleness. This is at the heart of who Jesus is and what he's calling us to be. Gentle and lowly. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for these stories that we relive every year. Of your entrance into Jerusalem to great fanfare of people. And I pray that you would draw our attention to the overlooked part of this of your riding on a donkey, of being gentle and lowly and humble. May we be struck by how profound that is in a world that's constantly seeking to win. Draw us into this very different way of life, very different way of thinking and being in the world that you have made. Make us your people riding on donkeys with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.